What's up, queens? Welcome to the Female Dating Strategy, the meanest female-only podcast on the internet. I'm Ro. And I'm Savannah. So this week, we are going to get attached by talking about attachment theory. I think this one's a long time coming because a few people have asked us to talk about this. I mean, I guess we'll get into it in the episode, but I'm somewhat split in terms of how I feel about attachment theory. I think it can offer a lot of explanation into how and why people behave in relationships in the way they do. But I also think the theory has its limitations, especially in terms of how it's applied to other people and to the extent to which it is unchangeable, so to speak. But we'll get all into that. I think I'm also concerned about how gendered it is and how much it attachment is nature versus nurture. I think sometimes things get gendered in ways that they shouldn't while not examining the cultural forces that influence men or women to behave a certain way. Agreed. So we'll kick off and we'll just do a brief overview of attachment theory and, you know, what it actually is. So Attachment theory essentially centers around the idea that different adults have different attachment styles. And an attachment style can be defined as basically a specific pattern of behavior in and around relationships that influences the way we approach our relationships and the way we relate to other people. Now, the important thing to note about attachment style is that the theory posits that An adult's attachment style is actually set when they are a child or even like a toddler or a baby, basically in their formative years. And this attachment style is based on the relationship that child has with their primary caregiver. And this is where I start to feel like the misogyny starts to creep into psychology here, because when we talk about primary caregiver, what we're really saying well and truly is women basically, because this theory was developed in the 50s and 60s where women were doing the child rearing, even in the strange situation, which was an experiment that was devised by a psychologist called Mary Ainsworth to basically test attachment theory. You'll only see the women in the experiment with their children. You don't really see like the men. That strike one against the theory is that It posits basically that women are essentially responsible for the way their child ends up attaching to other people later on in life, which, as Rose said, doesn't take into account other contexts or other relationships that the child might have with with other caregivers, either present or absent. But not even just caregivers, with culture at large, right? I mean, I know a lot of mothers talk about this, about how as your child gets older, it actually becomes really hard to influence them against what pop culture is. So you can make the argument that sometimes the attachments are not just modeled by familiar relationships, but often by like cultural narratives, which is why we're so adamant about breaking down cultural narratives that don't benefit women. Exactly. So essentially, attachment theory basically says that our attachment style tends to mirror the dynamics that we had with our caregivers as infants and children. And it identifies four different attachment styles. Some psychologists have tried to identify more attachment styles, but the four we're going to discuss within this episode are going to be other main ones, so to speak. So you have a secure attachment, you have anxious attachment, avoidant attachment, and disorganized attachment. And so the final three basically forms of an insecure attachment style. 
Okay, so we'll go through each of the insecure attachment styles in turn. And we'll also look at it from a dating lens as well, because it is good to be aware of attachment theory if you're out dating, because that different people with different attachment styles, they tend to have similar tells. But at the same time, I would stress that I wouldn't spend a lot of time trying to work out somebody else's attachment style. Because ultimately, if somebody isn't meeting your needs in a relationship, it doesn't matter what their attachment style is. You need to kick them to the curb. What you don't want to be doing is you don't want to be spending all of your time trying to put people into boxes and trying to identify, oh, he's avoidant. That's why he's pulling away from me when it's like, no, that's just a waste of your time. So we'll start with avoidant attachment. And in the book Attached by Amir Levine and Rachel Heller, they argue that the dating world is... It tends to be full of people who are to have an avoidant attachment style purely because they are the most difficult to have and maintain a close romantic relationship with. So what tends to happen is they basically get tossed back in the pool because they're so difficult to date. And the genesis of this particular attachment style or attachment theory would argue that within somebody with a supposed avoidant attachment style, their brain developed in an environment where the person could not consistently rely on their primary caregiver or caregivers to meet their emotional and physical needs. This might be because the primary caregiver was not consistently available. So they might have been, you know, dealing with a mental illness. They might have been physically unwell or disabled, or the parent could have just been absent. So there could have been an absent parent somewhere, inconsistent contact, for example, witnessing domestic violence. And so what this environment does, it basically impacts the way their brain is wired and the way they develop as well. And so their internal working model essentially becomes this. It essentially becomes the idea that if I don't depend on anybody, if I don't get close to anybody, then I cannot get hurt. As a defense mechanism, what they try to do is they then try to outwardly not feel anything because their internal working model will say something like, if I don't feel things, then I can't get hurt. And they learn to eventually suppress their emotional needs because their emotional needs are not being consistently met as well. And so eventually, due to the inconsistent behavior of their caregivers, the child with an avoidant attachment style eventually begins to see the world as uncertain and unsafe. And they begin to see other people as uncertain and unsafe. And so a way that they deactivate, so a deactivating strategy is basically a strategy that somebody with an insecure attachment style does, sometimes subconsciously, sometimes consciously, in order to basically prevent their feelings from getting hurt, is they try not to get too attached to people. And so they distance themselves from people if they feel like the relationship is becoming too intimate. And on the surface, it seems like these people are independent, they're self-contained, they're in control of the emotions. What it actually comes down to is the fact that they are deeply, deeply insecure, that their needs are not going to be met as well. And, you know, weirdly enough, people who have an avoidant attachment style, they do want intimacy, they do want to be close to people, but they are so afraid of being rejected that they push people away from that. So the only thing about that is like, I feel like it's very hard to tell the difference between like 
pushing people away or being aloof because you have avoidant attachment style and just being an exploitative dick, right? And this is where I kind of dislike pop psychology is that it's easy to prescribe a person who is in a relationship with you, but being emotionally aloof as, oh, they just have avoidant attachment style and use it as an excuse rather than like some people do that because they want to maintain a sense of control and power over the relationship, right? They don't want to give you anything. And honestly, I identify in some ways as an avoidant attachment, like just feeling like, okay, sometimes it's very hard to trust people that they won't betray you or that you'll get your needs met in a, in a relationship. But at the same time, I've also met people who might mirror some of my behaviors on the outside, but their motivations are totally different, right? Like they're just not fully committing to things or they're not emotionally investing at all, not just because of fear, but because of control and power. Yeah, that's the reason why I said that at the top of the episode. It's useful to know about attachment theory, but I wouldn't really spend your time trying to work out if somebody's, you know, has a particular attachment style or not. Because like Roy rightfully said, there are isn't always easy to explain or understand why somebody is behaving in the way that they do. And most importantly, even if you were to say that, okay, yeah, this guy who's blowing hot and cold, he's got an avoidant attachment style. It's like, okay, but he's still not meeting your needs. So you're still back to square one. It, I mean, ultimately, the motivation behind the behavior doesn't actually matter if the outcome is the same. But if you do want to, I guess be pop analyzing your partners generally speaking people with an avoidant attachment style can have quite a distinct approach when it comes to intimate relationships so for example they may blow hot and cold and this particular attribute it can make them attractive to people who are anxiously attached which we'll get on to later on in the episode because they're sort of like the yin and the yang they sort of activate the worst parts of each other's attachment style so this is why people or psychologists who promote attachment theory they often say that an avoidant and an anxiously attached person they tend to form quite tumultuous relationships with each other because they activate each other's attachment attachment systems in basically the worst way possible. They might have lots of people around them, but they don't have many close friends. They value their independence quite a lot. Again, I would just also caveat as well that this particular list is, it could be indicative of an avoidant attachment style, but it might not necessarily be an avoidant attachment style. These are just some things that you might want to consider. They might take pride in the fact that they don't have feelings. And I think this one is an important one because people who see like having feelings as a sign of weakness, you know, even for example, people who are deemed to be narcissistic, for example, there's this idea that even a narcissist, they want to feel loved and accepted, but they just go about, you know, getting that in a very, very maladaptive, destructive way. And it ultimately comes back to them feeling insecure. So if somebody is constantly basically prize themselves on, you know, not feeling upset or not feeling sad and even if they don't have an avoidant attachment style so to speak i would probably say that's an orange flag because feelings are you know they make us authentic and if you don't feel then you can't also possibly empathize with other people who do feel certain you know feelings and emotions as well man this is tough because again gonna tell on myself i guess only because sometimes i feel like life has a lot of challenges, ups and downs, tough times, etc. And I used to always subscribe to the philosophy that 
tough times don't last, tough people do. And so I just had this idea of like, fuck feelings, like whatever needs to get done, just do it, figure out an action plan, do what you need to do and worry about your emotions later. Now that is a unhealthy coping mechanism that has in some respects driven me to be successful and I think got me out of some tough situations, but it's also like in hindsight, a horrible way to live. And eventually all those emotions come out somewhere and it may not be in the healthiest of ways. So I don't know. It's a tough thing because I think finding people who overindulge in their emotions and just can't get out of them. I don't necessarily think a person who says, okay, I don't have emotions is necessarily doing it out of maliciousness or even like they may not even recognize the emotions that they have or they're just so focused on a goal they can't really stop to really think or feel because they're so used to suppressing them as well that they may not actually recognize them exactly which is very much going to be oil and water with a person who emotes a lot (laughs) so the person who is more emotionally expressive is a lot of times put off and feels like the person who is not acknowledging their emotions is like scary or shaming them for having feelings. And then the other person who has feelings, but doesn't really act on them or express them feels like the other person's immature, right? The person who's constantly like caught up in their emotions, it ends up feeling like a, a weird dynamic. I don't know. I think I would say a healthy person will have the ability to acknowledge their emotions, even if they don't always outwardly express it, right? I think it is unhealthy to go to the extreme and be like, I don't feel anything because everybody feels something. But at the same time, like how you deal with the things you feel says everything. If you're just not dealing with them, just so you can focus on a goal, or if you're expressing them, but not in a healthy way, or like an employee that's like, honestly, a huge inconvenience (laughs) or burden to others, or like somebody might feel that way because sometimes people can be so emotionally reactive, like they kind of suck up the air in the room, then both of those things can be kind of toxic. So I think it's about finding balance of feeling your feelings and then being cognizant of your goals, but also the way that it affects other people around you on both sides, both the stoic person and the over-emotional person. Yeah. And this is probably one of the things that I actually quite like about attachment theory is that even though it is quite prescriptive in some ways but it is a good way to also think about your own approach to relationships and how your childhood and the way you behave in adulthood in your relationships like how they're connected as well it can be quite sobering sometimes when you have the list and you think yeah I feel personally attacked and called out but I think it's a good it can be a good starting point to understand yourself especially but yeah as always I would use caution when trying to use it to explain other people and their own dynamics and their own internal stuff as well some other symptoms to consider are if they have a preference for casual relationships and a history of either casual or short-term relationships can also be a sign that somebody that has an avoidant attachment style being emotionally unavailable. I would actually argue that this isn't just a symptom of people with an avoidant attachment style. I would say if somebody has an insecure attachment style, they are likely to be emotionally unavailable as well. Even the more emotional attachment style, such as anxiously attached, which we'll get onto in a bit, you know, I'd also say there's emotional unavailability there as well. They tend to pull away from the relationship in terms of intimacy, and they present as having a high opinion of themselves. But deep down, it tends to come out in different ways that the person is insecure. 
I mean, they may say that I don't need anybody or they may not ask for help or whatever, but it will come out in different ways that the person is insecure and they do actually seek a deep, close relationship with other people. They just don't know how to get there, so to speak. Psychologists have also put together like a sexual profile for each of the attachment types. And again, you know, sex is very complicated in society. It's heavily influenced by different factors such as porn, etc. But these are just some of the attributes, I guess, or like the sexual behaviours of somebody who is an avoidant, according to psychologists. So the first one is that they don't tend to see sex as an intimate act, hence why they tend to prefer, you know, casual or quite emotionally detached sex. So that again, cultural, right? I feel like society encourages men to behave that way towards women. And then there's a lot of women who say that they are also that way. And it says like a fuck and I don't have to feel anything. It doesn't mean anything to me. And I'm not saying that every type of sex that you're ever going to have is going to shake your world by any means, but it is kind of, you're biologically set up to fail here as a woman. <laughs> and it's about patterns of behavior as well, isn't it? But it's like, is that guy like an avoidant attachment if he has a lot of casual sex? Or is he just like exploitative of women because it doesn't cost him anything, right? You know what I mean? Like, because it doesn't really cost men anything sexually, socially, like maybe financially at best to have sex with women. Physically, it doesn't really cost them anything. It's like, I just look at it as a form of consumerism. It's not like they look at women as objects to please them. So it's not that they're being emotionally avoidant is that they don't register that a lot of women might have emotions about it at all or society doesn't teach them that they should care right you know what i mean like are you emotionally avoidant with like your toaster if you think of something like an object that you wouldn't think to have an emotional attachment to and that's the thing i kind of have trouble with because on one hand i'm like yeah that might mean that a person who has a lot of casual sex might be emotionally avoidant because they're trying to like not feel vulnerable etc but at the same time a lot of men are just like that because they objectify women such that it doesn't register to them that we're people yeah i think in the book attached they do touch on basically how the culture encourages avoidant behavior, especially within men as well. It's sort of, it almost acts as a framework for how men navigate the world as well. So they do talk about the cultural aspect too, and how basically women can be set up to be anxiously attached because women's you know needs are not only not met, but we're also encouraged to meet the needs of other people and not expect anything back in return. It's almost like we need another type that's just like sociopath, right? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like, yeah. as we go through all of these types, there's going to be exceptions to all this rules or motivations or behavior because every time I hear it, I'm like, yeah, this is also how a person who just doesn't give a fuck at all acts. And it has nothing to do with their internal emotional motivation so much as they don't register to other people exist <laughs> really another point to consider as well touching on culture is that the entire concept of attachment theory is heavily based in western ideals of child rearing and ways of attachment as opposed to being more inclusive of the way different cultures might raise children as well so there's also that too but yeah i completely agree with rowan that there is a strong cultural element and it's which comes first is it, does, you know, the culture come first and attachment follows or does attachment come first and then the culture follows? That direction of causality, I don't think it's been established yet. But progressing through the episode, basically, people who identify as 
being avoidantly attached tend to get quite upset about their perceptions about the way they are perceived as potential partners because even like psychologists such as the authors of the book attached they would basically say you need to think really long and hard if you want to get into an intimate relationship with somebody who is avoidant purely because they're deactivating strategies when they feel like their almost like protective shell against intimacy is being breached can be very very devastating to a partner as well but at the same time they also say that the current dating world partly because of the culture that we're in is heavily tends to be full of people who are either avoidantly attached or they exhibit avoidant tendencies as well so that makes dating doubly difficult but yeah they basically say like if you catch a whiff that somebody has avoidant tendencies then don't go there essentially and what's interesting about people with avoidant tendencies is that they tend to be repelled by other people who are also avoidant themselves you don't really see relationships where both parties are exhibit avoidant tendencies towards each other which is quite interesting you mean like it's hard for two avoidance to get in relationships with each other? They don't tend to get with each other. I guess the codependent model is more common. Because I guess if you're both emotionally avoidant, who initiates the relationship? There's got to be someone that actually puts in some kind of work. Otherwise, I guess you'd just be like two ships passing in the night. Yeah, they tend to just sort of repel each other. So on to the next attachment style is the anxious attachment style. And it's also known as the anxious slash preoccupied attachment style. And this is just my unfounded psychological opinion slash theory. But as I said previously, I do feel like women, like more women, I don't know the stats on this or if there's any experiment being done into this, but I do feel like women are more likely to be anxiously attached than anything else. Purely because, you know, if you look at the way that female children are raised, for example, even if they have male siblings, they tend to be raised very, very differently. And more often than not, the parents tend to be misattuned to the female child's needs. And this represents society at large where, you know, we live in a patriarchy that is overly accommodating to men's needs and desires, not so much to women's needs. So this is just my off-the-cuff unfounded theory. But I actually believe that women are more likely to be anxiously attached and the culture actively encourages that as well. Because people who are anxiously attached, they tend to give, give, give and give to situations or to people where they're not getting anything in return. So we'll do the general overview before we get into the signs of it. So the development of an anxious attachment style is also known as a preoccupied attachment style is also associated with an inconsistent parenting pattern as well. So sometimes the parents will be supportive and responsive to the child's needs, and other times they will be completely misattuned to the child's needs as well. This makes it difficult then for the child to understand what the parent's behaviour actually means, and most importantly, what kind of response to expect in the future. So, for example, on day one, the parent or the child, they may ask if they can you know, go outside and play and the parent says yes. On day two, the child might ask the same question and the parent will say no for no reason or or even be angry at them for asking if they can go outside. And so due to these mixed signals of behaviour, they begin to develop 
different deactivating strategies. So one of the strategies that they develop is that when they sense distance from their primary caregiver or later their partner, their attachment system activates and they will try to re-establish closeness with their partner or their parent. And so some of these, you know, trying to re-establish closeness, it can look like minimizing their needs, basically not asking for something being the perfect child or being the perfect partner, you know, not being honest about what they need and their desires. And eventually this suppression of their needs and desires will come out in different ways as well. It's hard to articulate it. And I guess to lend credence to your earlier comment that sometimes your attachment styles can be situational. A lot of my issue when I felt like I was being anxiously attached and trying to figure out my needs or not even asking to get my needs met is I didn't even recognize that I had them, right? Because if you are in a familial type relationships where that person basically slots you in the role to be the person who's always picking up their slack and being the adult in the room, then you don't ever actually get to express or have needs because the other person is too busy wrapped up in their own drama or their own life, right? So then, yeah, it does come out because like everybody has things that they need, but eventually you realize you're not going to get it from that person. Yeah. And I think that's a key point to make is that with this particular attachment style or these tendencies is that eventually you internalize that having needs is bad when everyone has needs and having needs is perfectly fine. And asking people to meet your needs is fine. You know, whether they can or not, that's a different discussion. But it's just that this whole idea that if I have needs or expectations of people, I'm a bad person. And that sort of encompasses, or that belief encompasses this whole anxious attachment style. Because ultimately, it's the fear that if I voice my needs, that I will upset people, that they'll leave me. Hence anxiety. And it might. I mean, that's the thing. And it might, yeah. If you're in a toxic relationship, not just romantic, but with your family, they will absolutely throw a fit if you suddenly have needs or need to set boundaries. So you have to protect yourself. It's tough because I'm like, yeah, in some ways... You may not be an actual anxious attachment style person. It's just that your situation has pushed you into it because it's toxic. Yeah, definitely. And I think as well, and I always tell, especially women, when I used to be active on the anxiously attached subreddit, I always used to say, are you actually anxiously attached or are you just dating a dickhead? Because weirdly enough, for many women on that subreddit, their anxiety went away when they were dating somebody who was consistent and you could actually meet their needs as well. So there is also a risk of prematurely diagnosing yourself with an anxious attachment style when really it's the person that you're with that's the problem or the people that you're with that's the problem. Yeah, I think that's what FDS is about because a lot of women would ascribe to these theories and I'm like, I think we've talked about this from the perspective of how much culture just pushes women into this role. And if you don't strategize against it, they'll always make it your fault and your problem. And you'll end up in the anxiously attached role because everyone's exploiting you. Are you anxiously attached or is everyone exploiting you? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And this is why it's also good to be aware of attachment theory as well, because another thing that can happen is it can sort of be used against you as well. Because again, women will internalize, oh, I'm anxiously attached. Like, I, so when he didn't text me back for three weeks, I threw a fit. When it's like, well, if a person that you're supposedly in a relationship doesn't text you back for three weeks and that makes you feel somehow, that's a normal response because that's not normal behavior as well. 
it's important to be aware of it, but also not to, I guess, be quick to label yourself as a certain attachment style, because I fully believe that it's entirely possible to have different attachment styles depending on the person that you're with. It's entirely possible to have, say, a secure attachment style to your partner and an anxious attachment style with your parents based on that relationship. Because ultimately, attachment is based on personalities. It's based on people. And this is the thing about attachment theory, which I don't necessarily like, is that it almost posits that if you, say, have anxious tendencies, it will come out in every single relationship when that's not the case. Ultimately, you get into relationships with people and personalities, not attachment systems. And so the behavior of the other person is undoubtedly going to influence the way you behave in that relationship 100% of the time. But these are some signs, I guess, that somebody has anxious tendencies in a relationship. I'm not talking about anxiety, I'm talking about in terms of attachment theory, by the way, just caveat. So they can be self-critical and seek validation from their partner. Their romantic relationships tend to be marked by an insecurity about the status of the relationship. So because their needs weren't met as a child, they feel like their intimate relationships are constantly under threat as well. They can get attached quite quickly, despite not really knowing the person as well. And most importantly, they can also be emotionally unavailable too. Because in their mind, if the relationship isn't real, this might sound like a paradox, but to them, if the relationship isn't real, then they can't get rejected. This is why they might prefer to be in long distance relationships or to create a fantasy bond with somebody. It's a way of them preserving their emotional unavailability so they can almost enjoy the perks of being in a relationship without actually having to put themselves out there and be emotionally available as well. They might also, you know, when their attachment system is triggered, so to speak, they can resort to protest behaviours to get their partner's attention. So what are protest behaviours? Protest behaviours are basically, as it says on the tin, like ways to protest the way they're being treated in the relationship. And it often comes about due to the person suppressing their needs in the relationship over a long period of time. So an example of a protest behavior, it can be keeping score in a relationship. It can be threatening to end the relationship if they don't respond by this time. I've actually done this myself once in a relationship. And you look back and it's just really embarrassing. Because again, if you have to resort to protest behaviors or game playing, then something is quite wrong with the relationship. That shouldn't be a normal occurrence in any healthy relationship. Right. Don't get caught up because you watched a bunch of these teen dramas and sitcoms and whatever have you. That's the one thing that's kind of cultural is that I feel like a lot of television shows to be entertaining, they tend to have people who are on the extremes of a healthy relationship. Yeah. Dysfunctional relationships. Yeah. Like sex in the city. Exactly. That's the thing. Like you can't get any of your relationship advice from TV because TV is designed to showcase dysfunction because that the conflict is where is what creates the interest it's where the in the drama show. Is. Yeah, it's where the drama is. But like it's really hard to do it in real life. Like <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you had a relationship like Carrie and Mr. Big in real life, like I think everybody would be like, Jesus Christ, break up with this guy already. He's already married someone else. He's not committed to you. And then we're supposed to feel happy at the end. Like, he left Carrie at the altar. And then they finally do get together and we're all supposed to cheer for this. Like, that's insane, right? 
So, but that's that show. It's the protagonist, you know, it's the conflict that creates the interest. But if you had a relationship like that in real life, that would just be extremely painful and you'd be pretty much insane to keep dealing with it. The thing is though, bro, a lot of women do as well. As much as we say like that's TV and it's wild, but a lot of women, unfortunately, myself included, we sort of find ourselves in these unhealthy push-pull dynamics. It's because society romanticizes disrespect from men. And I think that's actually the crux of the problem is that most of these relationships, you have one or two dynamics. One is the mommy McBang made model that a lot of sitcoms have where the guy is like this lovable oaf. And then the wife has to basically do everything. She's hyper competent because her husband can't be trusted to do shit. And so then they romanticize the mommy McBang made relationship where once again, him being an oaf all the time is a form of disrespect and learned helplessness. And then on the other side, you have the guy who's like maybe hyper competent, dashing, daring, sexy, very idealized in the woman's mind. And she pretty much puts up with insane amounts of disrespect because she puts him on this like this crazy pedestal and thinks one day they're going to have this relationship she's dreaming of despite no evidence of it. So when you look at both of these dynamics, it's just a level of disrespect from men towards their female partner that gets romanticized. I'm trying to think of like a situation where a man stays with a woman who's constantly fucking up in their relationship. Like, where's the TV show that reverses this dynamic, right? Where's yeah, I can't like think the, of one. Yeah, a fat sloppy wife who's shitty at everything <laughs> and her husband who's like this handsome <laughs> the hyper dash. Yeah. Like where's the reverse of that? <laughs> the home marina, the, the home marina Simpson. The husband basically spends all his time like emotionally supporting her and doing everything while she just does nothing. Like that's not something I've ever seen. And to be fair, there's a few people who've described some dynamic like this, like maybe their mom had a drug problem or alcoholism and they had a, a really a dad who was an enabler. But you never really even see that dynamic on television. And then on the other hand, you don't really see like, I mean, maybe you might see this. You might see like a very beautiful woman who basically never acknowledges a man who's really in her and maybe is kind of disrespectful towards him. But society sets us up to always root for the man. Like the woman is also like horrible. It's like they're trying to push women into these relationships with guys that are beneath them. So like sometimes you'll see that dynamic when the woman is obviously above the male protagonist and then they'll make the woman feel like a bitch because she's not into the shitty scrot guy. But it's never like the reverse. If woman could be on the guy's level in the reverse where the man's like the handsome, attractive partner, but at the same time, they'll still normalize that she should put up with disrespect. Whereas like just thinking of through television, like how these gender dynamics are reinforced, you just have to pay attention to it. Definitely. And this plays out in sex as well, approaches to sex. I've ranted about BDSM many, many times on this podcast and I won't reinvent the wheel here, but there's a big reason why majority of submissives are female and majority of dominants are male. Because what happens in that dynamic is that the submissive engages in sexual activity really to push their own boundaries so they win the approval of their dominant. As much as BDSM Wax is lyrical about how you can say no, you have safe words, ultimately the unspoken code in the submissive's world is that if I don't do this, my dominant will get sick of me and he'll leave me. That's the underlying fear there. And that's why they consistently push their boundaries. And even if you're not part of the BDSM world, if you look at how sex is generally, that's ultimately the way it's set up is that if women aren't willing to do certain sexual acts, then there's always that threat, oh, he'll get it from somewhere else, or he's justified in cheating, or, you know, she's boring as well. 
And this is why I say I feel like the culture really encourages women to be anxiously attached because it also means that they are more likely to be chasing, you know, men who are emotionally unavailable because that is what they are familiar with. And this is what we see playing out in relationships where women are with men who are clearly can't meet their needs in the way that they need to be met. And they're still around in those relationships because they're hoping that if they keep showing up, if they keep overcompensating for the fact that their partner isn't showing up, that the relationship will just work itself out. And that just doesn't happen. And it's familiarity as well. And this is why I think FDS is great at the accountability side of relationships. And I know this is unpopular because it can come across as victim blaming. But when you have, or if you can acknowledge that there's been a certain pattern in your relationships, say you've been dating guys who have been emotionally unavailable, you then have the opportunity to make different choices so you can get a different outcome as well hopefully. So yeah, I would say though, off the back of the discussion around an anxious attachment style, again, I would say if you suspect that you fall into that category, I would say before you start thinking that you're damaged or broken or that your attachment you know, system is fucked, do an audit of the people around you. Do an audit of their personalities, do an audit of what they are also putting into that relationship, an honest audit as well. And I would be very, very surprised if there weren't at least some people around you in your circle who are not putting anything into their relationship with you and you are actually, you know, putting in everything and also overcompensating for the fact that they're not also putting in anything as well. So that's the first step I would say before you start diagnosing yourself as anxiously attached. But I struggle to believe that an anxiously attached person would behave in this way if their needs were being met, if they were dating somebody who was consistent, if they had friends who were consistent. I struggle to believe that they would be resorting to these sorts of behaviours because their needs are getting met, if that makes sense. Well, I'll counteract it to say sometimes self-esteem issues are internal and it aren't a reflection of people's environment, right? So sometimes anxiously attached people, it's because they, yeah, they just have self-esteem issues. Like even healthy people might not know how to react or help that person because if they're so out of touch with their own needs or they're constantly emotionally reactive or they're constantly showing up with a false self to relationships, then they end up in these patterns repeatedly because other people even who are well-intentioned don't know how to help them right so it's just kind of sad because on one hand there's like shitty people that'll take take and take and take and not know any better though there's shitty people that will take take and take and take and they know better but they just enjoy using other people and then there's other people who are not trying to but since that anxiously attached person hasn't learned how to set healthy boundaries or express their needs in a way that other people can understand and then people don't know how to help them and then suddenly that person explodes and then everyone's like what's going on <laughs> like <laughs> you know so a little bit of both but I also think though that like issues with self-esteem, if we're talking about attachment theory being based on relationships per se, that can be a separate topic in and of itself because attachment theory is external and internal as self-esteem can be purely internal, like you said. I mean, what I'm saying is like, Obviously, let's say if a person is, you know, showing up to the relationship as they should, if they're then displaying, you know, behaviours 
or anxiously attached tendencies, then is that an attachment issue or is that more of a self-esteem insecurity issue? I'd say it's the latter, personally. But that's just my pop psychologist unqualified MSc psychology two cents. (laughs) So this will be a two-part episode. And in the next part of this episode, we'll be talking about disorganized attachment style and secure attachment style. Yep, yep. So that's the show. Check us out on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy and the website, thefemaledatingstrategy.com forward slash the forum if you want to talk about this episode. Also, check us out on Twitter for as long as it lasts at femdatstrat and on Instagram. <laughs> I mean, I always kind of make that disclaimer. Check us out on X, dumbest website of all time. <laughs> or at underscore the female dating strategy on Instagram. I think by now we're wrapping up all the post application so thank you to everyone who applied and we'll be getting back to y'all yeah we had such a awesome array of applications it's quite heartwarming to know that so many people want to take on this heavy crown that we wear twice a week and apologies for some of the gaps in recording like we said a couple weeks ago unfortunately it's just been really hard to find time and we've had tech issues as well it's crazy we've had some real tech issues so yeah so we're low budget over here (laughs) Um, so thank you for sticking with us we appreciate it but thank you for sticking with us as well yeah thanks for listening queens and for all you avoidant scrotes out there go and attach to each other and leave us alone die mad and die mad see y'all next week (laughs) see you next week